Welcome. It's, I'm so happy to see you at church this morning. My name is Kate, and I'm the women's pastor here. How's everyone doing today? How we had a, a good weekend? Happy to be here. I wanted to just share a little something about my weekend. Last night, Mark and I had the opportunity to go to a wedding for a special young couple in, in my life. So for 12 years, while my kids were going through school, I was part of a, a prayer group called Moms in Prayer. And we met every single week on Wednesday mornings, and we prayed over our kids, we prayed over their schools, from elementary school all the way through high school. And it was my secret prayer, and I, it wasn't that much of a secret, that one day that two of these kids in the Moms in Prayer, gr- prayer group would grow up and marry each other, and yesterday was the day. So you better believe I was at that wedding, I got all dressed up and was just celebrating and enjoying. We got an opportunity, the mom's prayer group got to go up when they were giving speeches and the mother of the bride and the mother of the groom talked a little bit about our prayer group. And then they asked me if I would give a blessing to the bride and groom, which was just such an honor of my life (laughs) to be able to do that. So that was really special. And then afterwards, There was a whole bunch of dancing and celebration. Mark had to drag me off the dance floor because he knew I had to preach. And let me just say, this was all done without alcohol. So young people, you can have fun without alcohol, right? Right. Okay, so I'm just so excited to for what God is doing in the next generation. I'm excited for what he's doing um, for us here at Cheney Faith Center. And I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share his word with us this morning. So this past year, 2023, we have one question that we're asking on Sunday mornings. And that question is, what do I believe? And this is a really important question because how many of us know that our beliefs form our attitudes, and our attitudes form our actions. And so today we're beginning a brand new series within that series about what do I believe, and it's answering the question, what do I believe about obeying God? What do I believe about obeying God? Now, this is a really crucial question for us as Christ followers, because being a disciple is more than just saying that Jesus is your Savior. Yes, that's the first step, and yes, that's very important. The Bible tells us that. But if we are truly going to be a disciple of Christ and be formed in the image of Christ, that means we're going down the path. It's a journey down the path of saying that Jesus isn't just my Savior Jesus is also my Lord. And what that means, when you say that Jesus is Lord of your life, it means that every part of your life is surrendered to Jesus. You are no longer the boss of your life. Jesus is the boss of your life, right? Jesus is the boss of your life as a disciple. And this, by the way, is a lifelong journey. It doesn't matter how old we are. There's still things that God reveals to us along our journey that need to be surrendered to him. And so that's what we're going to be talking about because obeying God is a big part of that discipleship process. Hearing what God is asking us to do and then doing it, that is a big part of how we surrender to Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus gave us the supreme example of what that looked like when he came from the Father to the earth. And he, his whole mission while he was here on earth was to do what his Father told him to do. And we even see this in the garden right before he was crucified. He's praying, his heart is breaking, and he's in physical agony and torment thinking about what lies before him, the cross. But what does Jesus say? 
in full surrender, he says, not my will, God, but yours be done. And that's the same heart and prayer that we get to have as followers of Christ as well. So because obeying God is a big part of surrendering and following Jesus, we are starting a new series. It's kind of like a case study, if you will, about obeying God, what obeying God looks like, or maybe better yet, I should say what obeying God does not look like through the book of Jonah. We're going to set the stage for this today. This will be a few-week series, so I'm setting the stage today, and then Mark will get the fun part. I get to kind of do the teaching historical stuff, and then Mark gets to do the fun part. But anyhow, I don't hold that against him or anything. Um, So we're going to set the stage. We're going to look at the historical context, the cultural context, look at some of the main characters. And the thing that I want to start out with by saying is many of us, probably most of us here, know the storybook version of Jonah, right? As illustrated by this big fish here, Jonah getting swallowed by the whale, right? We, we know that storybook version of Jonah. You can find a variety of animated books about that. You could go to the dollar store today and find a book about Jonah. But when we study through this book, we're going to see that the biblical narrative of, of Jonah is a lot more nuanced a lot more deep and rich than the storybook version often portrays. (laughs) And so as we get started, we thought it'd be really fun to play a little game that we're calling Jonah Trivia. Okay, here we go. Jonah Trivia. So first question up here. Jonah was a priest, prophet, king, or traveling salesman? On the count of three, one, two, three, what's your answer? Okay, let's see. Are you right? Yes, woohoo, prophet. Good job, good job. Okay, second question. The main theme or themes in the book of Jonah are obedience and disobedience, God's compassion and mercy for all people, salvation and deliverance, all of the above. Okay, which what's your answer? All of okay, let's see if you're right. Woohoo! Yes, you're right. Okay, now this one next. This one might get you. Okay. Oh, wait, I have one more quick thing to say. Like I mentioned, this book of Jonah is, is so rich. Um, it has all of these themes that, that were just on the screen. We are specifically going to be talking about themes of obedience and disobedience to God, but studying the book of Jonah would be a worthwhile endeavor for any of us. And up here, I have some different places that you could study. There's a Bible podcast called Exploring My Strange Bible, and there's a whole thing about Jonah there, or the Bible, that is weird, what is going on? (laughs) Trisha, you're doing a great job, you're doing a great job back there, or um, you can look at the Bible Project, there's a nine-minute video about Jonah, or if you're a real Bible nerd, and I say that term affectionately because I like to think of myself as a Bible nerd, you could do a 14-hour class on the book of Jonah. You probably didn't know that there was that much to know about Jonah, but there is. So that would be a worthwhile and valuable um, for your time. Okay, last question. The book of Jonah has a happy ending Happy ending for Jonah. True or false? Hmm, I hear some true. I hear some false. Okay, the answer is actually false. And that's that's because this book is so much more nuanced. We're going to read through it here in just a minute. And sadly, we don't see a nice, tidy, happy ending for Jonah. 
And if we're reading through the book of Jonah expecting to find that, we're going to be sorely disappointed because our task is to read this book for what it is and not try to make it have a happy ending. I I know a lot of us are obsessed with that fairy tale happy ending, Um, but for Jonah, we're just going to be learning from his life, from the prophet's life, and we're going to look at the themes that are in the book of Jonah. So with that in mind, I would like to read for you Jonah chapters 1 through 4. Kind of short. It takes about eight minutes to read through. um, It's also going to be up on the screen. So if you like to read along, you can do that as well. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Thank you, God, for a new day. Thank you that your mercies are new every single morning and that your faithfulness continues to all generations, including us. Thank you, God. You are so good. You are so faithful. And we invite your Holy Spirit to be with us as we read your word. Would you speak to us? Thank you, God, that you know exactly what each one of us, where we're at and what we need to hear and learn from you. And so may our hearts be open to hear from you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Jonah chapter 1, Jonah flees from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish.'" Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. As a side note, casting lots is a lot like drawing straws today, but in the ancient Near East, they really believed that God spoke through that. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. What have you done? Now that question, what have you done, it's a rhetorical question, but it's actually more of an accusation, like what the heck have you done to us here? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. 
At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, Jonah's Prayer. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now that's quite a picture, isn't it? Thinking of a guy with seaweed all around his head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now, this was a customary sign of repentance and humbling oneself during that time. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish." When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter 4, Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish.'" I know, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city 
There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. (coughs) He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now pay attention to the last two verses of this narrative, verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up, over, sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals." That seems like a rather abrupt ending, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, as we set the stage for this study in the book of Jonah, we're going to look at the historical and cultural context of the book along with the four main characters of the book. So first of all, let's look at the time frame for when this book was written. And although biblical scholars do not agree, and this is due to issues that we don't have time or probably a lot of interest to get into here now, we can safely say that this book was written, that doesn't necessarily mean it's when it happened, but this book was written sometime between the 8th and 4th centuries before Christ. I know that four centuries is a really broad time frame here, (laughs) Um, but this means that Jonah was either written when Assyria was in power, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, or when Babylonia was in power. And there's good arguments for both. Um, And if you find this type of thing interesting, if there's any other fellow Bible nerds out there, you can do some study yourself on this. Um, So we're going to look at a map of the ancient Near East. Okay, and the land right there where the Mediterranean Sea is, that's, the, that's Israel. If, um, okay, so this is, we can be reminded of what, where this took place in the ancient Near East. Um, and I want you to, first of all, keep in mind that there were different imperial powers that conquered and then controlled this entire region throughout history. The first empire to do that was the Assyrian Empire, which is over here on the right in red up there, Assyria. And they ruled this whole region from 900 BC to 601 BC. Then they were ultimately conquered by Babylonia to the south. So you can see Um, down from there in the south, Babylonia, Babylon. And they took over and controlled that same territory during the 6th century before Christ. Finally, Persia over here to the east, almost all the way at the end of the map there on the right, um, Persia to the east conquered Babylonia and took control of that whole Fertile Crescent area down to Egypt and then over to the Asia Minor from the late 6th century into the 4th century, and this was all before Christ. So as we look at this and we focus on the city of Nineveh, you can see that it's north of where Assyria is, is 
listed there. Up north of there is Nineveh. And it's really important to note that Nineveh was the oldest and the most populous city of the whole Assyrian Empire. In fact, it was the capital city of Assyria. It was located on the east bank of that river up there is the Tigris River, and it's where um, the modern-day Mosul, Iraq, is located. And interestingly enough, Nineveh was over 500 miles from Gath Hafer, which was Jonah's hometown. So God was asking Jonah to leave his hometown and go 500 miles to Nineveh. Although there is some speculation whether Jonah was written during the Assyrian Empire or the Babylonian Empire, what we do know is that Assyria was a very brutal empire. And they were the enemy of God's people. They took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 732 BC. To describe how brutal Assyria was, I want you to listen to some some words, some historical words from the Assyrian king Sankarib. These are his own words about one of his military conquests. We don't know if this was the conquest um, that, that they had over the northern kingdom of Israel or some other conquest. It doesn't really matter. It's just meant to give you an example of how brutal the Assyrian empire was. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many storms of a water, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass." Their testicles I cut off and tore out their privates like the seeds of cucumbers. Wow. (laughs) That is how vile, that is how awful the Assyrians were. And Nineveh was its national city, its national capital. So now we might begin to understand the conflict that Jonah faced, right? (laughs) When God said, I want you to go to that city and tell them about, about God. There are four main characters, (coughs) excuse me, there are four main characters in the book of Jonah. First of all, God, Jonah, the sailors, and then the Ninevites. So let's look a little more closely at each. First of all, we see God. Now, God is always a character in history because it's his story, and his character is on full display throughout this entire narrative. In the Jonah narrative, we see that God has the first word. Remember in Jonah 1.1, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So God has the first word. And that book ends with Jonah 4.11, where he also has the last word. Jonah 4.11, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? The note in my NIV study Bible on Jonah 4.11 says this, and I'm quoting this. It says, The commission God gave Jonah displayed his mercy and compassion to the Ninevites. And his last word to Jonah emphatically proclaimed that concern for every creature, both man, proclaimed that concern for every creature, both man and animal. 
Not only does the Lord preserve both man and beast, Psalm 36, 6, but he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires rather that they turn from their ways and live, Ezekiel 33, 11. <clears throat> Jonah and his countrymen, I'm still quoting, Jonah and his countrymen traditionally rejoiced in God's special mercies to Israel, but wished only his wrath on their enemies. God here rebukes such hardness and proclaims his own gracious benevolence, end quote. So this characteristic of God's gracious benevolence is important for us to remember. And even in light of current events right now in the Middle East, I think that this scripture is particularly timely. And I want to read it again, Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, this is God speaking, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? That was in context to the people of Israel at that time, but this is God's heart, and these are God's words to people in general. Okay, <clears throat> secondly, we're going to look at the at Jonah. He's another, obviously, main character because the, the book is called Jonah. He was a Jewish prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, and the only other biblical mention of him is found in 2 Kings 14.25, and I'm just going to read the second portion. It says, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet of, from Gath-Hafer. So we see here that Jonah was a repute, reputable prophet used by God in Israel. It's really interesting, though, the book of Jonah, because this book of Jonah is very much unlike other Old Testament prophetic books, because Jonah is a narrative account of one single prophetic mission that God gave to one person and how that all played out. This is much different than, say, if you look at Isaiah or Jeremiah, where God gives like oracles upon oracles of messages to give people, and that's interwoven with the history. This is just one single mission, one single message that God gave to his prophet and how that all played out. And that's a little bit unusual compared to other um, Old Testament books of prophecy. And since we'll be studying more about Jonah's life over the next several weeks, I'll let Mark share a little bit more about Jonah as we go along. So the third um, main character or characters in this book are the pagan sailors of the boat that Jonah jumped on to go from where he was to Tarshish, the opposite direction of God. And what we know about these sailors can be found in the text of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. So we see that this storm that God sent um, in this area where Jonah was on this boat was so great that these professional seafarers, like these were meant manly men. I mean, they were strong, they were tough, they were weathered, and they were afraid for their lives. <laughs> so this storm was so massive that these professional seafarers were afraid for their lives. And because of that, they called out to deliverance from their own pagan gods. And I'm going to say gods because during this time, what made the Israelites so different is that they were monotheistic, meaning they had one god, but these other cultures, they were polytheistic, meaning they, meaning they had a bunch of gods. So 
I can just imagine them on the boat saying like, let's try calling out to this God. No, that didn't work. Let's try calling out to this God. Maybe he can help us. No, that didn't work. So they were calling out for deliverance to their pagan gods and they fully believed that one of these gods would rescue them. I think it's also interesting to note that these seafarers had, had compassion because Jonah said to them, throw me overboard. And they didn't do that right away because they, they didn't want to. Instead, they tried to just muscle through this storm and try to get you know, where they needed to go to row their boat back to shore. But then finally, when they saw that that was just not going to work, they did decide to boot Jonah out, toss him overboard. And what happened? It instantly became calm. The sea instantly became calm. And that caused these pagan sailors to have um, a healthy fear of God. And they also showed um, some morality by... um, uh, between right and wrong, because as they're tossing Jonah or, overboard, they're praying to God and saying, God, please don't take our lives because we put this guy out to sea. Um, so they acknowledged God. Once they bumped him overboard and the sea became ca- calm, they acknowledged God. Now, this doesn't mean that they you know, said goodbye to their old gods be- because they were polytheistic. They most likely just acknowledged that God capital G, God, was um, in control of these events that they just experienced, and that also this was the God who was to be recognized and to be worshipped. Because back in those days, any God who had control over the seas, that was a God that could make, um, who could control chaos, that was a God that was to be worshipped. So we see God, we see Jonah, we see the pagan um, seamen, and then finally we have the Ninevites. And let's look and see what the text says about them. So we see that Jonah gives his prophetic message to the Ninevites. And in Hebrew, his prophetic message was only five words long. That's not a very long message. In in English, it translates in this version to seven words. So Jonah went through the city and he said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Seven word message. Interestingly enough, though, it says in the very next verse, after Jonah says these words, it says that the Ninevites believed God and contrasting this quick and complete obedience with that of Jonah and his obedience. So we see God speaking to Jonah and he doesn't do quick and complete obedience, but God speaks to the Ninevites who weren't even his people and they have instant quick and complete obedience to God. They declare a fast, they put on sackcloth that represented that they were mourning for their sin. And even the king repented and issued a fast for all of Nineveh So much so that even the cattle fasted. Have you ever heard of that before? That's unusual, isn't it? (laughs) But this king was taking this serious. He wasn't messing around. He proclaimed that everyone should call urgently on God. Not a little G God, but big G God. Give up their evil ways and violence so that God may relent from his divine judgment, have compassion, and save Nineveh. And this did, in fact, catch God's attention. God did have compassion. And because the Ninevites overthrew their wicked ways, God overthrew his plans of destruction. 
If you look at that um, five Hebrew word message that Jonah proclaimed, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. If you look at that word overthrown in the original language of Hebrew, it can also be translated overturned. So 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. And the really beautiful thing about this proclamation from God that God gave Nineveh to speak is it really did happen and not the way that you would think. Because the people of Nineveh did overturn. They turned around to God. And that is a really beautiful thing. So a couple more things I want to point out before we do a little bit of application and and close up here. The the first thing is, it's important for us to note that the book of Jonah uses the literary medium of satire and irony to convey several messages. And Tim Mackey from the Bible Project likens it to a cartoon comic strip, something that is so ridiculously humorous of a situation that it teaches and makes a point. And we'll see more about that as we go along. But the irony here is that Jonah, a prophet called by God to share the message of God, does the exact opposite. He disobeys God and is unlike God's character in so many ways. Then secondly, to recap the book of Jonah, it presents four successive scenes. And according to a book called A Brief Introduction to the Old Testament, these are the successive scenes of the book. Chapter one, Jonah the prophet receives a divine call, commissions, God commissions him to proclaim divine judgment to the wicked city of Nineveh. Jonah is reluctant, to say the least, and he boards a ship headed in the opposite direction. Then God sends a storm that threatens to sink the ship. When Jonah reveals that the storm is a divinely imposed punishment on him, the sailors refuse to throw him overboard until it is clear that they have no other choice to do so. The chapter ends with Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. Now notice the text calls it a great fish, not a whale. (laughs) Maybe could have been a whale, but that's not what the text says. It's just a great fish. And from the belly of that great fish, Jonah prays. In chapter 2, we see Jonah's prayer for divine aid and an individual song of thanksgiving that he voices to God. Then after three days, the fish pukes Jonah onto the shore, and realizing that resistance is futile, Jonah heads to Nineveh. Once he's there, we see a display of prophetic efficacy and success that is unmatched by any prophet who prophesied to the Israelites. Jonah's message is heeded by the Ninevites. So let me explain this a little further. Jonah's message from God that he received, unlike giving a message to the Israelites, God called him to give the message to people who were not God's people. And these Ninevites, who weren't even God's people, listened and obeyed so quickly. This is the most success a prophet has ever even had. And what's kind of sad is the rest of the prophets were speaking to God's people. And they didn't have the kind of obedience and success and listening and hearing and taking to heart like what um, Jonah did with, with the Ninevites, the pagan Assyrian Ninevites. So 
All the cities, after they hear that, all the inhabitants in the city, they fast, they repent, starting with the king himself, all the way down to the animals. And here we see that these pagan people are actually models of piety. (laughs) And because of that, God relents of the evil that he had planned to bring on Nineveh. Then in chapter 4, we see Jonah outside of the city, waiting for his prophetic word to be fulfilled, and the divine mercy of God infuriates him. He's not happy that they listened and have turned from their evil ways. He's just plain ticked off by it. And it's really interesting because in Jonah chapter 4, um, verse 1 and 2, it says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The interesting thing here about how Jonah is describing God, this is exactly the way that God introduced himself to Moses. If you'll remember, Moses was at the burning bush. He was called by God to go rescue the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites from Egypt. He did that. They come to a new land. God gives the Ten Commandments. Jonah comes down from the mountain. He sees people worshiping a gold statue that they made because he was up on the mountain too long. So he, in his anger, he breaks the tablets and then God calls him again to get some new tablets. And this is exactly when, when Moses went back to talk with God again, Exodus 34, 6. This is Moses and God, just Moses and God, no one else. Verse 6, and he, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That God who introduced himself to the people of Israel, and that's who they knew him to be, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And Jonah knew that. And he's almost throwing that back in God's face by saying, I knew that you were the God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding love. Do you see the irony there? It's just very ironic and and very interesting. So the the narrative of Jonah ends with uh, a quick, a a parable. God um, has, there's a, using a quick growing plant as a parable, God reminds Jonah that he has concern for all, all people, even the cattle of Nineveh. And that's the kind of God that we serve. So that's the biblical narrative in a nutshell. Like I said, you can study a lot more about it, but in a nutshell for our purposes for this series, that's the biblical narrative of Jonah. And I'm super excited that we're going to be studying this together over the next few weeks because I think that we are going to be challenged to examine our own hearts and what we believe about obedience to God. At the beginning, with our Jonah trivia, we asked if the book of Jonah had a happy ending for Jonah. And the tragedy of this story is that Jonah's heart did not change, which does not make for a happy ending for people. (laughs) When our hearts stay hard and they don't change, that does not make a happy ending. 
And Jonah was actually representative of Israel at that time in Israel's history. They worshiped God through regimented acts of worship, such as offerings and sacrifices, but their hearts were far away from God. They were not truly worshiping God. They were just trying to placate God. And that is called false piety. God does not want our outward acts of worship. He wants nothing less than our hearts. And we will see through this series that the true measure of obedience is through the heart. Maybe you, like me, have seen glimpses of yourself in this story, your heart, some attitudes, or even some actions. And as we do a deep dive, pun intended, (laughs) into um, Jonah's life, we're also going to do a deep dive into our own hearts as well. If you watch that um, Bible Project nine-minute video, one of the last scenes in the video, it shows um, the story of Jonah like someone is looking at and reading the book of Jonah. But then that, those words turn into a mirror. And, you, and what's meant to, what this is saying is that this book is meant for us to look at our own hearts and our own lives as we read Jonah's story. We're not supposed to just look at judge Jonah and judge him and say what a terrible human he was. We're to look at it and, and let it be a reflection of us. Where are we at? Where are we at in our hearts? So the invitation that I think God is asking us as we go through this series, not just this week, but for the next several weeks, is to let him search our hearts. Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, is a really beautiful scripture prayer. And it's on the screen for you to look at. I'm going to read through it slowly. And as I do, I want you to consider if this is a prayer you want to pray for your own heart and life too. And then after I read it and talk about just briefly, then I'm going to invite you, if you sense the Holy Spirit inviting you to say this prayer with me, then we can say it together out loud at the end. God... I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there is any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious, everlasting way, the path that brings me back to you. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? To invite God's searching gaze into your heart, to examine you in the deepest part of your life, to look at anything and everything that may be hidden within you, to put us to the test and sift through even all the anxiety that we may have, any paths of pain that we're walking on, And then for him to get us back on the track, on the path that leads us back to him. The path that leads me back to your glorious everlasting way. The path that brings me back to you. And I believe that that's God's invitation for us as his people as we go through this series. And if you just say, you know what, Kate, I love that prayer and I want to pray that too. I want to have my heart in a place um, where I'm 
on that path that God has for me. Because here's the thing, it really does boil down to the heart. It makes me think of the little three or four year old who had to be in a timeout. So her mom said, you need to go sit in a timeout because X, Y, and Z, get your attitude under control, whatever. And the little girl goes and sits on her timeout chair and she says, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. That is not what God has for us. He, ra- he looks at the heart. He looks deep, deep inside. And you know what? He has just such a gracious invitation to us. He knows that those hard places in our lives, those places that are hard for us to surrender to him because of past pain, because of lack of trust, whatever the reason may be, because we're human. <laughs> and he invites us so gently, so graciously to surrender more and more of our lives to him. And so if you want to pray this prayer along with me, I invite you to just quietly pray this out loud in your seat where you're at. God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there is any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious everlasting way the path that brings me back to you. And God, that is the prayer of our heart. And Lord, there may be some people here due to some things that they're going through that are even having a hard time praying that prayer. And Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you meet us right where we're at. And may you show all of us that you just want our hearts and Offering our very hearts to you is a big deal, and we don't want to do it halfway, but the beautiful thing is you'll you'll take us even if we say, God, I can offer you an eighth of my heart. (laughs) You say, okay, we'll start there. And so if there's anyone here this morning that is just saying, Kate, for whatever reason, I'm having a hard time with that, would you just know that, that God sees and he knows? And he just has a kind invitation to you to um, slowly but surely surrender more and more of your life to him because that's truly what being a disciple of Christ is all about. It's about offering him more and more of our lives. Just like that song that we sang this morning, um, I lift my hands up, lay my whole life down before you. That's That's what he wants. And so, God, thank you that you meet us right where we're at. Thank you that you desire all of us. Would you help us to take the next steps that we need to obey you, to follow you, to surrender our hearts and our lives to you? It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, Mark and I will be up here, maybe some other prayer partners. We'd love to pray with you at the end of service. Thanks for being in church today. Always remember that Jesus loves you very much, and so do Mark and I. Have a great week.